0: Welcome to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How we consume it and how it informs our everyday culture. I'm Christian Sager, a writer and a designer. And I'm Charlie Bennett, a librarian and a radio raconteur. Each episode is us trying to understand the entertainment world that we all live in. Just a little bit better. Today's episode is about the hounds of love by Kate Bush. This 1985 concept album is split into pop songs and a suite of music about someone drowning. We look at Bush's career arc leading up to this record and how the support she received from those around her allowed her to experiment and create this wholly unique music.
1: You can find the episode notes at patreon.com/supercontext, where you can leave a comment or write us an email at supercontextpodcast@gmail.com. At did you know who Kate Bush was? Do you like babushka? Yeah, yeah. So Chris, I think often we talk about my 90s fixation because there was a certain amount of just like, okay, I'm locked in. This is my stuff that happened to me in the 90s. And, uh, and that's true. But listening to a 1985 sort of pop, sort of experimental album, reminded me of how much i liked stuff in high school that was a little bit weird a little bit off the beaten track a little bit uh uk and a little
0: bit prog so to clarify the high school for you is the 80s
1: high school let's see high school was 86 to 91
0: okay Um, yeah. So high school for me was 91 to 95. So, oh, the good time you bracket, (laughs) what you think of as the good time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is an interesting record, I think for, uh, dudes, especially because this isn't the kind of thing that I think we gravitate toward automatically, uh, unless it's brought to us in some other way for me. So
1: dudes in this case though, is a little, it's, it's a little bit like bro, right? Like yes. guys, but sort of a little more guyy than guy. <laughs> I, I think Kate
0: Bush is resistant to uh, just like in general male ego, if that makes sense. And like, oh, that's interesting. I'll, I'll okay, give you yeah. a good example. Um, a really good friend of mine is a gay man who loves Irish music. And when I used to work with him, anytime Kate Bush would come on the radio, he'd be like, I don't understand this. She's just such a weirdo. And I would be like, she's this is this is music like for you, buddy. Like Now listen, Chris, I have to
1: give him one bit of slack. The research for this record is the first time I ever heard the song Wuthering Heights. Really? Yes. And that's hard to listen to when you're not prepared. <laughs> when you when you're not sure what's coming. That can be a little bit of a, oh, I don't think I like this person.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of it. I think it, and he's older than I am and older than you too, actually. And uh, I remember him saying like, yeah, you know, like the first time I heard this on the radio, I was like, what the fuck? Like, (laughs) yeah, because it was so (laughs) abnormal and it is kind of fascinating that she ended up on the radio at all. Right. Um, It is a sign of that particular time for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. This is going to be a really interesting uh, episode, I think, music wise, because we're going to learn a lot about not just her production, but like musicians in the English recording industry in the late 70s, going into the 80s and like how things were, were kind of done for these pop stars. Yeah, it's
1: funny how little Kate Bush I've heard and how many of the people in her larger story are folks that I've been fascinated with.
0: Right. Yeah. And yet you've never once been tempted to, to throw on hounds of love.
1: I'll tell you something. If it were, if we had Spotify Mm -hmm. in 1987, I definitely would have already heard all of Kate Bush Mm -hmm. because the moment that, uh, her voice appears on don't give up by Peter Gabriel, Mm -hmm. I am fixated, right? I am, uh, transfixed. And Back then, what would happen is I would say, Man, I love the woman who sings on Don't Give Up. Oh yeah, that's Kate Bush, someone says. Like, oh, what's she? She's like, well, you know, she's got her records. I'm like, okay, well, if anyone ever loans them to me or I get some extra money to buy one, I'll hear it. You know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas now it can totally I could jump on anything and find out, well, what's that all about? And dig around in her her whole catalog, et cetera, et cetera. But at the time I was younger, I was a lot more rigid in my sense of what I would listen to. And I had many, uh, many fewer resources to explore music than I do now.
0: Yeah. I think that'll be interesting as well. When we get to the identity themes section of this episode and people talking about what makes hounds of love important and why it resonates with so many people. Um, it's a really interesting story. I myself am a fan, and I've been a, a Kate Bush fan for I don't know 15, 16, 17 years now. Uh I didn't listen to this actively when she was performing uh, or putting out records in the in the late 80s, early 90s. I was clearly too young at the time. Um but I I found her because a friend of mine got really into her and introduced me to it and um I fell in love with this record. I like the Red Shoes a lot. I don't, I'm not like the kind of Kate Bush fan where I have like every record. I, um, I listened to a lot of the, like the singles, but like yeah. Hounds of Love, I listen start to finish uh, very often.
1: Okay. So Hounds of Love, the Hounds of Love, which is a concept album, a loose concept album of two suites, mm. the Hounds of Love and the Ninth Wave is a 1985 album by the singer-songwriter Kate Bush. It's her fifth studio album. Let us talk about the super context, shall we?
0: Yeah, so you mentioned the two suites. This is something I didn't know. Actually, I knew almost nothing about this record other than that I liked it. Um, So I learned a lot doing the research for this. So I didn't know there were two suites on here. I just thought it was a record. Um, and I think it's
1: amazing that this this album is a, a, a perfect example of why, not why, but how the transfer to CD mm-hmm. is, is such a uh, a significant but somewhat unnoticeable change yeah. in artistic intent.
0: It was designed for vinyl and cassette. Um, so side one was the Hounds of Love side, and that is essentially all of the pop singles. And then the ninth wave is the second side, and that's a seven-track concept piece that Kate Bush has described as being about a person who is alone in the water at night. It's about their past, present, and future coming to keep them awake, to stop them from drowning, to stop them going to sleep until the morning comes.
1: Now, the standard description of that in a lot of music journalism is, you know, the harrowing uh, seven-song suite of uh, what goes through a person's mind while they're drowning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It gets very much reduced. Uh, so Kate Bush is a singer and, uh, dancer, performer, concept yep. artist. Uh, she also plays a
0: synthesizer and piano on this record. Mm-hmm. And she, she composed this music too. Uh, so again, like I, I, I didn't really know her backstory, and uh, it's fascinating. So she started off as a teenager. Whenever I saw like pictures of Kate Bush performing like Babushka or, uh, or Wuthering Heights, I was like, Oh yeah, that's a person in their thirties. And she was like <laughs> fucking 18 years old. She was born in 1958. And a lot of what
1: we're talking about is started happening in 75, 76. Yeah. You know, her career. Uh, there's a big deal made of how Kate Bush's family is exactly the kind of family you'd want to have if you're going to be an artist. Mm -hmm. And she's got um, a musical family, especially uh, at least two brothers, if not more who are um, musicians and supportive. And then her parents were also totally cool with her trying this out. Yeah. Trying a music career, a songwriting career so much that uh, at age of 13, she had already started making demos that would eventually become top 10 singles in her future musical career.
0: Yeah. And, and we're going to weave in and out of talking about a documentary that Charlie and I both watched to supplement this episode. Uh, it's on YouTube. If you want to watch it, it's a BBC one hour documentary about Kate Bush's career where they interview people who worked with her, but also just like People who have been influenced by her, a surprising group of people who've been influenced by her. For instance, (laughs) Steve Coogan gets a lot of spotlight. Steve Coogan is an essential
1: piece of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Neil Gaiman talks about how much he likes her, but Steve Coogan talked about how her existence was a chunk of one of his stage shows. Yeah. So much so that she came down to see it, to see what he had been doing.
0: So the thing that's interesting that was revealed in the documentary is David Gilmore of pink Floyd. Another person I think that was influential to you, Charlie shit. Yeah. Um, he was the reason why her career got started and, uh, she left school. She wanted to get a publishing deal. They had a family friend who knew David Gilmore and played Kate's demos for David Gilmore. And Gilmore was like, this is interesting. I want to um, take her under my wing and try to introduce her to record labels.
1: Yeah, it's almost a game of telephone here. So uh, Kate Bush made demo recordings uh, at home or you know with her brothers in um, studio, uh, studio time and studio space that they could just grab. And then the family friend who was connected to the music industry... Liked those demos, passed them on to another person in the industry who was a little more famous, David Gilmore, Pink Floyd guitarist, who then said, ooh, let's do more of this. And then he went to Kate and said, let's do another set of demos that then he would use to try and get a recording deal for her.
0: And one of the things that I want to note that was revealed in the documentary to me was that the original demos that she gave him were over 100 songs she had just written oh, shit, that's just, right, yeah. just massive stack of songs and gave it to David Gilmore. And some of those songs went on to be on her first record. For instance, like the man with the child in his eyes, which is one of the singles I believe. Uh, and, and it's just like, wow. Like she wrote these songs when she was 13. And then five years later she had a record deal and was, she wasn't touring yet, but she was putting out these like mainstream records.
1: Yeah. David Gilmore describes it as um, the story he tells in the documentary is that he took the the new demos to um, Andrew Powell. Uh, No, he took, he went to Andrew Powell, who was another EMI producer. And they, uh, they made that next set of demos. And then he took that to an actual executive. And he said, I played it for him. And immediately he said, yeah, we'll have that. Like by the time they got to this uh, you know, uh, rough draft to better draft to final draft of demos. It was something that caught the EMI executives' ear
0: immediately. But Gilmore glossed over this in the documentary. There was a period of time where he was trying to garner interest in her work, and it was unsuccessful. People would listen to it, and they weren't interested. But, I can
1: only imagine that for some folks, it did not sound like yeah. anything
0: that they understood but eventually Andrew Powell was the one who lit up with it Um, so yeah Gilmore had access to executives at EMI Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the company later in the episode Uh, and basically got them in front of the label's general manager and they were like cool this is the part that blows my mind they signed this kid and then they were like here's an advance just go just go work on this Um, we have no
1: expectations. (laughs) Yeah. They invested in her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's crazy too, is the amount was 3,500 pounds,
0: right? I did some inflation
1: checking. That's $25,000
0: right now. Yeah. Imagine when you were 18, if somebody handed you $25,000 and was like, cool, just go do a thing. Go make, go, go be creative for a year
1: go, don't pay attention to anything else. Just do your own thing. I actually imagined that I might've been able to come up with something that was good, (laughs) but definitely not as much good as she came up with.
0: So during this time, she was also not only taking, she learned piano as a kid, but she was also taking performance art dance classes with Lindsay Kemp. Who's this renowned mime artist. And he had performed Jean Genet's flowers in London and she saw it and she was just thrilled by it. And so basically she learned the art of dance and performance from him. And the story he tells in the documentary is like he remembers her as a student, but she never said, hey, I'm this singer songwriter who has a record deal. And when her first record (laughs) came out, he just came home one day and it was slipped under his door. And he was and there were songs dedicated to him on.
1: Yeah, he was thanked on the record um it, in her sort of professional biography people point to her amazement at Lindsay Kemp's performance and her classes that she took as key portions of what her artistic scope would be yeah. that movement and dance became part of what she did
0: yeah whenever i think of kate bush i don't just think of the um just wild falsetto vocals but also of her in a leotard or something similar, just thrashing around doing weird performance art that is somehow mimicking what the song is about.
1: Now, I don't know enough about either one of them to really back up this analogy, but it does seem like Kate Bush and Lady Gaga had very much the same kind of position for, in terms of performance and in terms of affect,
0: that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, I suspect that <laughs> Kate Bush would, you know, is less confrontational, I guess, than than Lady Gaga. Although, as we'll learn, like, there is a lot of subversive messages in, in these songs. Um, but, yeah, that's interesting. There is some overlap there. Um, and also in the same sense of, like, I mean, Lady Gaga is, I think, what we would refer to now as a diva, right? Like, she is, like, a, a mega pop star. Yeah. Kate Bush would never the, perform at the Super Bowl. Yeah.
1: The non-performance personality. Yeah. Very much not the same. But looking at the promo videos of some of Kate Bush's songs and, the, like, the wild change and even just costuming in babushka from verse yeah. to chorus, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like, oh, that might have felt to some people the same way that Lady Gaga feels to people now yeah, or it could or right? did before before she became before the woman she started the Star wearing born. dresses yeah.
0: made out of bacon um yeah i mean so to clarify if you have not seen the babushka video she starts off in a leotard with a veil uh stroking a uh, stand-up bass and then cuts and in the chorus she's dressed up like red Sonia in a chainmail bikini uh, yeah. and it is it's crazy
1: <laughs> and and you know she's not shrieking the word babushka but she's singing it in such a way that it's actually more powerful and crazy than if she were shrieking it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so to clarify that song's not even on this record, that's an earlier song, (laughs) but
1: we're all over the place. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it it does give you a, a, a demonstration of kind of where she went with this performance art aspect. Um, so EMI had given her this freedom. She spends this time and uh, supposedly this money, you know, I don't know if she spent all the money that year or what she did with it. Um, and she developed the material. Now, she was frustrated because when she started presenting material to them, they would say, well, this needs to be a little bit more commercial. Yeah.
1: They gave her $25,000 of uh, you know twenty-five thousand worth of money. I don't know exactly. How do you say that when you're talking about past stuff, but trying to do the value? They gave her 3,500 pounds, which is $25,000 now and said, go do your own thing. And when she brought them her thing, they said, now we don't hear quite enough money here. Can you, can you go back and get some more money in here for us?
0: So this is the part that I have to wonder about. Wuthering Heights is the, the hit single off of the record. So that's the song that they were like. This is, this is commercial enough. What was it like before they pressured her for it to be commercial?
1: Well, I mean, don't forget also that, I mean, they heard her demos. It's not like they said, um, hey, this person seems to be good. Let's give her some money and see what happens. Like yeah. they kind of knew what they were getting. And so you have to imagine, I mean, the phrase is constantly pressuring her to make the songs more commercial. Not commercial, mm-hmm. but just more commercial.
0: So while she's working on these songs, she's taking these dance classes and she starts playing basically with like a a bar band um, to get used to performing. And so she assembles this live band. It includes her brother, Patty, uh, and it also includes Del Palmer as the bass player who the two of them are like hugely important collaborators for her leading up to Hounds of Love.
1: Yeah. Patty Bush has been on every single record of hers, I think
0: yeah i think that's true um so they go out they're they're playing cover songs she's the front woman in front of this band and really just kind of getting used to like the london rock scene
1: and and learning how to perform in front of yelling people yeah the uh, cover songs that are singled out that they did were brown sugar i heard it through the grapevine and come together
0: it is, yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine being in a, a bar in London in 1979 and all of a sudden Kate Bush is wailing Marvin Gaye covers at you. Like, it must have been wild. Yeah. And it
1: might have also been kind of part of
0: the whole scene just generally. Could have been. Yeah. So, all right. This is a episode that is about Hounds of Love. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on her other records, but... Suffice to say, she put out her first record, The Kick Inside. That came out in 78. Lionheart then came out also in 78, maybe 79. And then Never Forever in 1980. So she's just like one record a year. Boom, 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 boom. She meets Peter Gabriel. And they work together on some things. Peter Gabriel introduces her not only to drum machines, but also to this device called the Fairlight Sampling Keyboard. And this is like hugely important to Hounds of Love.
1: Now, I've seen Fairlight as a credit in so many Gabriel albums and in other albums. I never quite understood the full import of that. And then through this documentary that we've been talking about, I finally see the Fairlight. And it was nothing like what I pictured in my head. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Because I didn't realize it was the Fairlight sampling keyboard.
0: Yeah. So it's essentially two keyboards with... I mean, what I would describe as like a Commodore 64 attached to it. Like, it was a very basic computer. And yeah, the... did you
1: see that bit where he used like a, a mm-hmm. light pen to tap the screen to say this is where I want to drop the sample? Yeah.
0: Amazing
1: technology for 1980.
0: So the idea was you would record a sample live and then you would run that through the processing unit in the computer and that would make it so that you could play that sample in different keys and notes on the keyboard itself.
1: Yeah. uh, Anything from breaking glass to a mouth sound to another instrument. And Peter Gabriel is credited with introducing, quote unquote, introducing a Kate Bush to drum machines and the Fairlight. And I've also read, but cannot confirm, that the first two commercially produced Fairlights were owned by Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that certainly makes sense. Uh, Yeah, I can't imagine that they were super common back then, and they were, I would also imagine, quite expensive. Yeah. Uh,
1: It was then, uh, she's described as being intrigued by Gabriel's use of rhythms and programming for the recordings, and quickly found the necessary
0: tools for her own studio. So this is an important note. Around 1979 is the only time that Kate Bush goes on tour. So if somebody says like, yeah, I remember I saw Kate Bush back in the day or whatever, like, no, they didn't. Because this is the only tour that she ever did. And it was Uh,
1: before Hounds of Love. There was one more tour that's very recent
0: very recent yeah sorry sorry yeah But, but in this time frame yeah uh and but and she did like live performances on tv and things like that but she wasn't doing shows regularly um and the reason why is because this tour sounds nuts they did multiple multiple costume changes there was singing and dancing worked into it they did 28 dates around europe and when you watch this thing like it's it's a full production. It's like a theatrical production. It's not just going to see a band perform.
1: Now, when you were watching some of the behind the scenes or the performance vids, I mean, did you say to yourself, like I did, oh, wow, that, that is totally what happens in the multi-million-dollar stage shows that say Madonna or Britney Spears or Katy Perry or Beyonce do now. You know, that, think, yeah, yeah, I that think. they were doing without the the sort of support structure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't even know how to describe it. So there was they're going to theaters or clubs and doing all that stuff packed into um a green room (laughs) and a backstage that requires
0: tractor trailers these days. The closest thing that I've seen to anything like what, what this Kate Bush tour looked like was when I saw ghost last year and they had like this whole theatrical production. There was like a, a stage that was built to look like a Gothic castle Mm -hmm. and you know, there were costume changes. There were, I mean, it was very present day. They were shooting flamethrowers. There were confetti cannons, all that kind of stuff. But this was like a performance art play. Mm-hmm. And and she had a headset on. That she, she didn't invent it, but she basically just made a DIY headset out of a wire coat hanger because that technology didn't exist yet.
1: Yeah, she was doing so much moving and dancing and performing that uh, one of the sound engineers said, We got to put a microphone on you that you don't have to hold and basically invented the headset. Uh, Kate Bush said, I did enjoy it, but I was physically exhausted. Eventually I got nervous about performing live again because I hadn't done it for so long. And I think I actually started losing a lot of confidence as a performer. I felt that I'd become a writer in a very isolated situation, just working with a small group of people And the more she presented, the more she performed, the more she lost whatever the drive was to, um, express herself.
0: Yeah. She says that it, 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 uh, got her away from being who she was and what she was interested in, which was basically playing piano and singing every day. Um, and she decided she didn't want to lose sight of that. And so she stopped, she stopped touring, Uh, this is going, this is evidence of, of more to come with Kate Bush. Like the most important thing in the world to her is being like faithful to her creativity and being honest with it and authentic and, uh, anything that gets in the way of that. She just puts the brakes on. Yeah. The tour wasn't too elaborate for her.
1: It was sort of too out of her control cause she would continue to make albums with a lot of production and make little movies. Mm-hmm. You know, she was, she was making music videos in the, the classic narrative sense, mm-hmm. you know, uh, before MTV started. And then what's funny is I don't know why I never saw Kate Bush on MTV. Like, I was don't I just know either. I'm watching surprised. Watching the wrong time. Yeah. You know, do, when you do, said, did I see never her and her? not recognize her? You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I, I learned watching this, which now makes total sense is like, oh, yeah, Kate Bush and I have similar interests. Like, not only is she like a reading nerd, but she she's clearly a horror fan. And like <laughs> the um the music videos have this like kind of gothic, scary edge to it. And multiple people who were influenced by her talk about how when they were a kid and they saw the videos, they were terrified of them. Um, But like. For instance, there's like a a quote that starts off the song uh, Hounds of Love with um, it's from the Night of the Demon movie. Right. Um, She talks about how there's another song on Hounds of Love that she wanted to sound like the choral effects that are in Nosferatu. So like she's clearly like pulling from some pretty spooky influences.
1: Yeah. And what she enjoys doing as an artist is taking time in the studio and coming up with sounds and building songs out of time mm-hmm. you know spent thinking uh by the time she recorded The Dreaming which was her fourth album she was described as taking complete control of the production side of things each track was approached in a different way and given plenty of room to find its own identity which also meant then that some people had a harder time understanding it and The Dreaming was her least successful album now she She didn't have like an unsuccessful album so much as she didn't match expectations because she had been so popular in
0: the uh, first three albums. But even then, like the dreamless established her as this inventive fearless performer. Like everybody knew about her. My favorite quote in that documentary is Elton John talks (sighs) about his wedding and he's like, Kate Bush came to my wedding and the only person all these famous celebrities wanted to meet was Kate Bush because she's such an enigma and she'd been out of the spotlight for so long. It
1: reminded me of one of the SNL performers describing Prince walking into the uh, Saturday night live anniversary show Mm. and like Paul McCartney turns away from Chris Rock and says, Oh my God, Prince, you know, like everybody
0: just loses their shit. Yeah. So so she, she's got this career. She's put out four albums by now. She is a a pop star. She's played on the radio. She hasn't really broken in the United States all that much, but she's big in Europe and the UK. Uh, and she kind of disappears after the Dreaming for two years. Now, remember, she's been cranking out these records. And NME runs an article in 1985 basically saying, like, what happened to Kate Bush? Where'd she go? <laughs> it's been three years since the Dreaming. There's rumors that she's gone mad, developed an addiction to junk food, and saw her weight balloon to 20 stone, or that she had retired from the music industry entirely.
1: Yeah, there's no reason for a woman to take time between records except if she's ugly.
0: Right. Essentially, yeah, that's that's their argument. Uh, She sends out a newsletter to her fans in 1983, and this is what she says in the newsletter. This year has been very positive so far. It doesn't have the same air of doom and gloom that 81 and 82 seem to hold. The problem is that if I don't make an album this year, there'll be at least another two-year gap. and the way that business and politics are, that would be a negative situation. I seem to have hit another quiet period, and I intend to keep on writing for the first part of the year. So yet again, I slip away from the eyeball of the media to my home. Now, what was actually going on behind the scenes was she was building her own studio at her parents' house.
1: Yeah, a 24-track studio in a barn behind uh, East Wickham Farm. She was building her own studio so that she didn't have to pay anybody else to take the time to figure out
0: what she was doing. Yeah. She said that she had been dissatisfied with the frequency that she'd been expected to create new material and that she would have created better music on those first four albums if she had more time. And she said part of the problem was going from studio to studio and that she felt guilty about like being experimental in somebody else's studio when the record label was being charged by the hour. She
1: said, moving the studio into my home couldn't have been a better decision. It helped in so many ways. I felt much more relaxed and free to work in an uninhibited way. If you're paying for studio time, you feel guilty if you experiment that you're throwing money away. Whereas at home, there's none of that pressure.
0: So this is an important distinction. Hounds of Love is a record that she produced. There were engineers. There's multiple engineers listed in the credits, people who ran the boards for her and so on but she produced it. She wrote the music and she envisioned the whole package.
1: Yeah. This is the, the concept album comes out of not sort of duress or attempts to explain what she was doing to other people, but from taking a long enough time to live life, to go away from the work and then come back and try and process it. Um, you already mentioned sort of where she pulled some of her, uh, you know, material for the record, but also here's a quick listing of stuff that was inspirational. Uh, the tr- first track, the Hounds of Love, excuse me, was contrived from the 1957 horror movie, Night of Demons. Cloudbusting was based on a novel called a book of dreams uh, by Peter Reich. The name of the ninth wave was pulled from a Tennyson poem called the idols of the King and based on a surrealist painting called the Hogsmith Ophelia. Which depicts a doll drowning in the sea.
0: How uh, familiar are you with Peter Reich and his father Wilhelm Reich?
1: Oh, okay, not at all with Peter Reich. Okay, very familiar with Wilhelm Reich.
0: Yeah, so Wilhelm Reich is is who that song is about. It is about I got it the okay. cloud busting machine that he claimed to have built. That could influence weather patterns by redirecting orgone energy into the sky. Okay, that
1: just made all of that so much more wild.
0: Yeah, and so um, we'll we'll get to this in a second, but the the music video for this stars her as Peter and Donald Sutherland as Willem Reich. Oh, of course it does. And H.R. Giger built another horror icon <laughs> built the cloud busting device for the video. It doesn't, by, by the way, I've been to Reich's estate and I've seen the cloud busting machines. They don't look anything like they look like in that video. They're way right. cooler looking in the video.
1: Well, you know, she's got to have the fun.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. So, uh, Kate Bush described working on hounds of love like this at the time. It was such a lot of work, the lyrics and trying to piece the whole thing together but I did love it. And everyone who worked on the album was wonderful. In some ways, it was the happiest I'd ever been when writing and making an album. I know there's a theory that goes around that you must suffer for your art. You know, all that stuff about it's not real art unless you suffer, but I don't believe this at all because I think in some ways, this was the most complete work that I've done. In some ways it's the best. And I was the happiest that I'd been compared to making other albums. That fills me with such warmth. Mm. You know, yeah. just imagining someone who had enough structure to their work that they weren't going to just kind of keep playing around and not getting anything done, but was able to just say, I'm going to let the ideas come to me. I'm going to work them out. I'm going to spend time messing around with the fair light or talking to my co-musicians, but bringing the songs out of work time as opposed to on company time.
0: I mean, everything about this is enviable and sounds like kind of the ideal conditions you want to produce art under, right? Like she's making art with her closest friends, her boyfriend, her family, her brother, her family is letting her use their home. She is surrounded by people who support her. The record label. I mean, she's been working them for with like five years at this point, But they're basically like, okay, every year we're going to give you an advance and you go make a record and do your thing and then bring it back to us. And this is the one where she feels like she has the most control because she's using that money to build her own setup as well.
1: Now, uh, there's a writer named Ron Moy who quotes Kate Bush as saying, you have to break your back before you even start to speak emotion."
0: And this which, has to do with how slow she writes,
1: yeah, which which sort of if I had not heard all that other stuff before I heard that quote, I would have assumed that that was the I have you have to suffer for your art mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i I take this to mean more you have to labor, you have to do the work well, to it, get to something that you're going to you know really express.
0: yeah, it wouldn't be a super context episode if one of us didn't mention Warren Ellis here. Uh, Ellis in his latest newsletter talked about how that he's he's working on this like new methodology for when he's writing it's basically like he just opens up a document and he just like types whatever's in his head until he's got a thousand words and he says you know the idea is to just build from there layers upon layers upon layers until you've got the finished product and he says when you're a writer the only version that anybody has to see is the last version right all the other versions they don't need to be perfect Just get the thing down, put, put the ideas out there and down and build them up. It sounds like that's how Kate Bush was working too. She was just getting these ideas down slowly, but surely building them up into these magnificent songs.
1: Yeah. And I think it's a lot easier to mess around with musical instruments, with sounds Mm. than with words. Like you can just idly, like half listening to yourself play music and see what comes out. As opposed to yeah. that sort of automatic writing that you have to force yourself into doing.
0: Well, imagine the possibilities of the fair light too, right? Like yeah. she's sitting in a barn with the ability to record anything and then play it back in whatever arrangement she wants. It's pretty wild. Um, so she writes and, and records hounds of love this way. Uh, and we've talked about the arrangement, how the, the songs are, are, you know, put onto the two different sides. Here's something interesting that I learned about the, um, first song which i think is the first single running up that hill uh originally she wanted to call it a deal with god and the record label was like yeah that's not not a work.
1: contract with god yeah
0: <laughs> she says uh, apparently the problem was going to be that in religious countries they wouldn't play it on the radio so that meant in italy france and ireland they couldn't get on the radio and that would have been a big problem for production so they changed the idea that it would be a deal with god she said now, I couldn't believe this. It seemed ridiculous to me. The title was such a part of the song's entity. I couldn't understand it, but although I was unhappy about it, I felt that if I didn't compromise, I'd be cutting my own throat. I just spent two or three years making this album, and if I was stubborn, we weren't going to get this record played on the radio. So I had to be a grown-up about it, and we changed the title to Running Up That Hill. But it's something I've always regretted doing. I always regret any compromises that I make.
1: It's um, admirable, That something as simple as that is a great
0: regret that an artist has. So then she's, you know, the record comes out, they start making videos, which are marketing material essentially, but she's like working together with people. If she's not directing them herself, she's working together with people who are letting her see her same kind of like performance artist vision in these videos. Um, I mentioned the cloud busting one already. That is, that's a classic video. Uh, the Hounds of Love video is wild too. Like, just uh, um, it's creepy. It, it feels like Brazil, <laughs> the movie Brazil, to me.
1: Yeah, uh, I've got more from Ron
0: Moy on on video channels, but who is that? He wrote uh, like a book. I don't know if it's the book, but it's a book all about Kate Bush and specifically Hounds of Love. So the notes got in it. here are okay, from like cool. the book that one guy researched all about this musician and, and record.
1: So the book on this record points out that in the early 80s, dedicated video channels were a reality in many parts of the globe and the pop promo film, the music video, was superseding touring as the most cost-effective way to promote new releases. For an artist such as Kate Bush possessing a strong visual dimension but unwilling or unable to tour, this proved to be a real advantage. So she did not fall away because she couldn't perform. She had another way
0: to promote. And it seems like, yeah, because of her performance artist background, that she was better at selling herself this way than other musicians might have been. Right. Like let's think back to the eighties and some videos, right. Mainly they were just two or three camera shots of a band playing the same song. I remember during this time, was quite young obviously watching mtv for the first time and there were two videos that i still remember to this day that fascinated me and scared the living shit out of me okay the first was a billy idol video and i don't remember which (laughs) song it was for you might remember this but uh, or our listeners might remember but in the song it's basically like a gothic vampire story And it ends with, with, you know, like Billy Idol, I think is like in the embrace of this vampire and somebody has fangs. And I was like five or six years old and just like, ah, and thriller. And yes, thriller scared
1: me. Yeah. You know, it was uh, actually, um, don't come around here no more by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Mm, That's a creepy one too. It's a little creepy yet, but then at the end she turns into a cake and they eat her. Yeah. And that, that stuck with me for a long time
0: yeah um and so i think you know your lady gaga comparison is apt in the sense that like the kate bush was well prepared to be able to sell herself in this unique medium Um, because it wasn't just music like it was for other performers for her it was like this multimedia experience
1: yeah she'd already prepared herself to do compelling short films to her songs It did backfire a little bit when um, folks at MTV started to say things like, we need to see the performer singing.
0: Right. Because in some of the videos, (laughs) she wouldn't sing. She would perform. She would dance uh, to the songs and use her hands and legs to gesture the lyrics. Yeah. Moy goes on to talk about how, uh, you know, she was unlike other creative musicians in that she wasn't just writing about her life experiences. She was writing about things she imagined, but things that she learned from creative texts. We've already mentioned books, movies, et cetera, paintings. Um, And that she referred to herself once as one of the television generation Mm -hmm. and that her single most creative influence actually came from film rather than from music you know, she she talks about Alfred Hitchcock being influential to her. Jesus, like it, we're just constantly dropping all these horror references here. Right it's, right. it's amazing to me that I never put two and two together, how influenced she was by that stuff. Um, And she's confessed that dreams and real life characters, quote, visit her in her sleep. And these influences contrast to the more usual pop narratives that we were seeing at the time. Things that drew upon stock phrases and stereotypical situations or the omnipresent subjects of romantic relationships such as sex, altered states,
1: and dancing. Now, the thing that I kept thinking of when I was reading over these notes was uh, Weezer. Do you know about the switch in Rivers Cuomo's uh, songwriting process that happened as Weezer progressed? No. So this is a very simplified version of it. Okay. But in the first few albums, the songs were written as songs. Here's an idea. Here's sort of a poem about that idea that matches the music I'm playing. and I'm sort of figuring out how to make it all work together. Sure. By the time Weezer got into like six, seven albums, Cuomo was simply uh, recording nonsense phrases and riffs. And he would go in a studio room and just try to find things that locked together sort of like Lego. So they uh, didn't
0: have meaning. They were not,
1: not much at all. Yeah. yeah. Like there might've been meaning when he f- first came up with a, an idea that, that translated to lyrics, but then yeah. he would also, he would sing melodies and then try to find words that match them from, you know, uh, his notes and bits like that. Huh. So he was essentially assembling songs from, I don't know exactly how to say it. Uh, assembling songs from effective genre tropes mm-hmm. of rock and roll mm-hmm. hm. that were okay. detached from his personal life. And Kate Bush is the exact opposite.
0: Yeah. This seems to be very different.
1: Yeah. And so you know, in the middle between, between Weezer and Kate Bush are bands like ACDC that are trying to fill containers With at least somewhat um, understandable uh, information that match previous previously established containers
0: of information. Well, it's like anthemic information that is uh, going to encourage the audience to, you know, pump their fist up in the air. Oh, yeah. Like,
1: I love it when a good riff hits and I don't really care what they're going to sing about. It's got to be not stupid. Like if. If a really good ACDC riff came on and then he started singing about petting puppies, I'd be like, that's kind of gross. Is that, is that fucking, is that what he's saying? But what that's... if he
0: was singing about Emily Bronte or Wilhelm Reich?
1: I would probably wonder what the hell happened.
0: Yeah, right? And so this is a completely different beast that's going on here. Not to mention, then those are the pop songs we're talking about. Then you get into the ninth wave side of this record, the the real experimental stuff that's based on a, Tennyson poem, uh, and and, and the painting, yeah, and, and it's just um, it's it's unlike I think what most people were doing at the time, so yeah, so she's she's combining these ideas with this new technology, not just in terms of video making, but also the music that she's producing with the Fairlight and drum machines. Uh, In 1982, she did an interview with Electronic Music Maker in which she said the Fairlight was attractive to her because it gave her the ability to create human, animal, emotional sounds that don't actually sound like a machine. And she said, in a way, that's what I've been waiting for. You know, she'd been playing the piano and then this thing comes along and it's it's the same mechanical technique as the piano, but it allows her to, to play with all these other sounds.
1: Yeah. So she was trying to represent dreams and emotions in In a set of songs that were supposed to be connected that didn't have the kind of um pulsing dance beats that uh the first side of the record had yeah. um yeah it's it's actually quite beautiful, and it's hard to listen to when I can't give my full attention to it
0: oh you, know? you think so S- so you well, can't at, just have it on in the background
1: not while um the kids are running around, really. What, why, I, you, why, why are you surprised by that? So the, yeah. when I put on Hounds of Love, yeah. and the first five or six songs play, yeah, I can hear it, and it's okay if the kids are, you know, coming up and saying, "Daddy, you know, can you, you know, tie my shoe or set up this uh, checkers board?" But by the time we get to the ninth wave, it's very hard for me to keep giving it my attention if there is this sort of. Distracting noise and activity Oh, I see what you, you
0: mean. You mean like you want to be able to sit and focus on Oh, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not Sorry. saying I can't focus on no, other no. things going on in the room while this is playing.
1: No, it's beautiful. Gotcha. And, and while Hounds of Love, uh, the first part of the record, is propulsive and compelling and has that, what I think of as a Peter Gabriel drum sound, but I guess is actually just more common in that uh, era of records that I dig... The Ninth Wave, then, is a different listening experience than the first side of the record.
0: David Sinclair wrote about this record for Rolling Stone magazine, and he went on to sort of contextualize Kate Bush's influence at the time. And he said, you know, when this record came out, she was this control freak who already had, she was overruling her record company's decisions about what the songs would be like. While she was doing that, quote, Madonna was still playing drums in her first group
1: (laughs) that's a very dismissive connection but it it does point out to like kate bush was being compared with
0: madonna well the reason why was uh this record and a madonna record were vying for number one for a while like this was the top competitor to madonna when it came out
1: and there's that uh you know madonna is the american version of kate bush because she was someone who wrote her own songs and and put them together in the studio and was able to you know be honest and true to herself is that kind of the
0: the other connection i don't know is that true about madonna was madonna writing all of her own songs was she composing the music
1: i don't know she was composing the music but she was more present in the studio than what some people imagined pop creations yeah. were
0: i think the other thing they have in common is that like they're both doing songs that are somewhat subversive about both religion and mainstream culture and, and sex
1: Yeah, I can see that. Um, Kate Bush has a quote, though, that kind of flows from this idea. Sinclair uses it. She says, uh, I don't have enough hours in the day. I don't do everything myself. I have people working with me who are wonderful. But I've managed for so long without a manager. I'm not sure there are a lot of things I'd want a manager for. I suppose I feel that at least the decisions I make are coming from me. And I'm not put into a situation that I wouldn't want to be in.
0: So this is like a little bit like it's contemporaneous with DIY punk. So she wouldn't use these, these terms, but like she's talking about it like that. Like she is in control of every stage. She's her own manager. She's her own producer. She writes her own music. She has her own studio at this point. Like this, but is... she's
1: being um, funded and distributed yeah. by a major label. Yeah, because And she's I think able at that to manage point, this.
0: There probably weren't a lot of alternatives in her mind, you know, and like, uh, EMI was probably more realistic to her than, I don't know, factory records.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know enough about, you know, the, the feeling about those labels, but yeah. whereas a DIY punker might say, you know, we're going to start, Hey, we're going to start discord. That's how we're going to release these records. Mm. Kate Bush was making sure that she had that freedom while also being signed to a major label.
0: And one thing to note, I'm not a hundred percent sure about this, but since her big hiatus, I'm pretty sure she puts out her records on her own label now. You know, it's almost
1: her own label. She has her own division of EMI that's called fish people. Okay.
0: Okay. (laughs) Potentially another horror reference. Um, We actually have a, a little bit of a firsthand account here of working on this record and what it was like, you know, you look at the credits and we don't have time to go through every single musician that's credited on here, but there's a lot of people that came into the studio. It wasn't just her and Del Palmer and her brother. Uh, And one of these people is Michael Berkeley. And he wrote about this. He said he got a phone call from conductor Richard Hickox one day that was asking if he would help out with a rather unusual job for a choir and he was intrigued because it was a Kate Bush record. She was working on Hounds of Love. And for the song Hello Earth, she wanted a chorus to recreate the orthodox singing, chanting that was part of the Nosferatu film. This is what you mentioned earlier, yeah. Yeah. And he said the only problem was that there was no sheet music and that anyway it would need to be notated and completely rewritten. And I don't think this was like within her skill set of like writing all of this out in notation so, for a so choir a
1: music student, a music student got a call from a conductor. The conductor said, Hey, I'm working on this pop record with Kate Bush. And the student yeah. said, Ooh, Kate Bush. And they said, okay, we're going to have to take an existing piece of music that doesn't have a score and figure it out and adapt it. So it can be played as part of this pop record.
0: Yeah. So he goes and he, he's working with her And he says this, he's like, look, let's be honest, like I was a fan of Kate Bush. But in 1985, it was assumed that Hounds of Love was going to be a final fling at the conclusion of a waning career.
1: Because of the the reception of the record before and the now not unusual, but but then unusual gap of three years before a, a new record.
0: So Kate. Bush sends him a cassette probably demos of the record and he w- was like, Oh, wow, I my assumption about this was totally wrong. This is this is something like I've never heard before. And so he describes this as the process of working just on that song. He says structure was carefully delineated verses and chorus was were written out fully and marked up in color and Kate talked about the sound quality in graphic terms. Still not having been able to identify the music of the title sequence of Nosferatu or even the language that it was sung in, she suggested that if it was necessary, I write something similar, but added that while the key of this chorus would need to relate, it could arrive as something foreign, harmonically a surprise, as though from another world. In other words, while it had to fit, Kate, wanted the song to sound collaged. This is just one song on this record. Yeah.
1: And collaged is what most of her work ends up being once it gets out of the studio. You know, like, like her videos, her films of her music are essentially collages of her uh, dancing, of her performance, of the sort of costuming and production and the music that she's already sort of, collaged out of uh, literary reference now it's not literally collage of course because they're these uh coherent works of art they're not pulled from a bunch of different stuff but her her um ethic no her aesthetic her process is that of collage when it comes to the ideas that are then turned into these um distinct pieces
0: do you remember, uh, on a recent episode I told you about when I, uh, like took a stab at making electronic music myself about 20 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. So I was using this like very rudimentary software called MTV music maker. And at the time that was like light years ahead of what Kate Bush was using on this record. <laughs> but essentially it gave me the ability to visualize measures and meters and place Uh, the different tracks side by side in ways that were like a collage. So I was visually able to comprehend the beats of the song and then record samples and slap them in and stretch them out or whatever was necessary for them to fit whichever beat I was using. And that's what it sounds like she was doing here, that she had the Fairlight was giving her the ability to visualize this. And when it didn't, she would sit down with people like this guy and they would literally draw it out and use like colors and markers to understand how all of the, the different instruments and yeah. vocals were layering on top of each other.
1: But then they would do it in live performance
0: Yeah, because yeah. that
1: the, the composition student uh, that we've been using as a sort of source here describes the eventual recording day when all of the singers come in And, uh, and everybody's sort of like, wow, we're going to meet Kate Bush. We're going to meet this crazy person. But she was just, uh, he called her quiet and unassuming the kind of sympathetic, slightly shy girl who greets you from behind the counter at the local chemist. She and Del Palmer, who was her boyfriend, bass player, and an engineer Mm -hmm. made them go over four or five musical phrases over and over and over again. The conductor and and the composer thought that uh, people's voices would start to break going (laughs) over this little, essentially a sample, right, that was going to be dropped into this song for a brief period of time. They worked until people thought of it as a a thing that might break them.
0: Hmm. And then I would assume not only did they use it on the track, but they probably recorded it and ran it through the Fairlight as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, who knows what they did? after the organic performance to then sort of build the song in the studio.
0: So we we've mentioned this guy who helped compose the one song. We've talked a lot about Kate Bush. The other main performing personnel on this record include Del Palmer, who we've mentioned. He was uh, a longtime member of her band, the studio bassist at the time he was her boyfriend. Uh, I believe they broke up right before red shoes, but continued to work together musically. Um, and he helped her with track composition and engineering. Patty Bush, her brother was a multi-instrumentalist. He played guitar and mandolin on this record and a bunch of other unusual instruments, including the didgeridoo.
1: And he's, he's a very sort of eccentric, um, moment in the documentary. Yeah. He's got wild hair, crazy eyes, and he's like describing some instrument. The, The, uh, journalist says, Oh, and what's this called? And he says something like, um, well, the actual name of the instrument is the, you know, Pangadong (laughs) Skarmadu. And it's like, just throws it away, whatever the fuck he's talking about.
0: And then the main engineer that worked with them on this is James Guthrie, who is best known for his work on Pink Floyd's The Wall. He helped her engineer this record, and he conducted the orchestral sessions that are in cloud busting. One of the things... So I love cloud busting. I've listened to that song a zillion times, but until now I'd never seen it performed live. And during that documentary, they show this infamous live uh, performance that's on like a, I don't know, like some kind of like British late night talk show type thing. And uh, they have like, not just her band, but there's, there's a two cello players on either side of her, Wailing this thing out, and it's just nuts watching them put this whole thing together live. And if that is the core
1: of the the record, the people who worked on it, there's also I'm going to count it real quick. There's another. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. There's another 20 credited musicians, including a couple of groups like the choir that we talked about and a mm-hmm. sextet doing strings, who came in and did one or two tracks. Yeah. Yeah. But the people who were on everything, who worked on everything, was that core of four
0: so this was recorded as we mentioned at her parent the it's not her parents i guess it's the family home it's called the wickham farm home studio um and it was published by emi we've mentioned this <laughs> again i, I can't talk about this label without having johnny rotten in my head just yelling emi yeah uh, and weirdly and johnny y- rotten's in that documentary too
1: <laughs> saying how much he liked the dreaming yeah. i've been calling emi a major label and you know what that is disingenuous i i should not have been calling it a major label it certainly was a real record label and part of the music industry but it was a british record label that had only started in 1972
0: yeah, and at the time that they put out this record, these are other artists that EMI were working with. Craftwork, Queen, Olivia Newton-John, Iron Maiden, Sheena Easton, Pink Floyd, and Robbie Williams.
1: And that's where my idea of them as a major label comes from,
0: because these, these artists are all huge in, in a lot of ways. But quite varied. Craftwork yeah. to Iron Maiden to Robbie Williams to Kate Bush. To Pink Floyd. Yeah, it's wild tinkers to evers to chance dude um so this record did well we'll we'll talk about that after the break but there's another version of this record that was reissued in 1997 they remastered the whole thing and it was released as part of emi's first centenary reissue series and it included six bonus tracks uh some of them are just like different versions of the the same songs. I believe like if you're listening to it on Spotify or whatever, this is the version that you can get a hold of. Um, yeah, the tracks are at the bottom of the listing. Yeah. yeah, so there's extra there's extra songs on top of the first two suites that we've been talking about. Why don't we take a break, and then when we come back, we'll talk about how this sold and how it kicked Madonna's Like a Virgin right off the charts.
1: Hey, Chris, what's the German word for a practice that you have been uh, learning, but now is no longer relevant, yet you still enjoy? Um, (laughs) Nine. Super context, Patreon spot. That's what
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't I don't know German. (laughs) But yeah, they probably have a word for it. So
1: this is where. We have been explaining to people why they might want to be Patreon supporters of Supercontext because we are an independent podcast funded by our audience. But also, this is our last month of um, production. We're going to shut the podcast down and take the RSS feed to an archival purpose. We want to leave it up, but we're not going to put new content on it. So we're at the point now where... If you help us fund that uh, maintaining of the of the RSS feed for as long as we can, we will do a mini-sode, a short like half hour, forty five minute back and forth every month, and uh, and we'll keep the community up too. Anybody who supports us on Patreon at any level after May first gets access to everything, and helps Super Context stay alive past our drop dead date of May 1st
0: yeah if you just discovered this podcast you've got like I don't know where are we four episodes left before we we wrap it up three yeah and then there's you know our entire back catalog but there's also all of the minisodes that we've recorded over the last two years as well as the shadow podcast super king context all of which will become available to you if you donate only one dollar a month to the show
1: We'll keep it up, keep the show archive up for as long as we can afford it. The day that people stop paying for it, we'll take it down. Uh, no harm, no foul. This is the best part. This is where we give the roll call of people who have supported Super Context and folks that I, I think of as my friends at this point. Like I, I will continue to check in on most of these people even after we stop doing the podcast. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Alex Laird, Alice Florence, Ambrose Allen, Amit Doshi, Andy Riggs, B.B. Schwells, Bennett Callahan, Beth Barnett, Beth Gilmore, Billy Whitehouse, Bing Bong Man, Brandon Daniels, Brian Chauvinich, Caroline Zoids, Chris Merlton, Cliff Landis, and Coco for supporting Super Context.
0: Thank you also to my friends and yours, Dave Jordan, Dave Wachter, Elijah Tilstra, Evan Mapstone, Fred Rascoe, H.A. Eugene, Ira James Udeskin, James McDonnell, Jason Puckett, Jim Taylor, Jess Staten, John Klima, John Pheasant, Joseph Aleo, Juan Patton, Junta Slash Cult, Calvin Ellis, Carmela Padovich, Kate Sharon, Kevin Wetter, and Christian Hirvula.
1: And thank you to Lee Fowler, Lokesh Dakar, Luciano Fuck, Luigi Oswego, Melinda Hale, Miriam Meany, Misha Moon, Nathan Weatherford, Nick Sage, Patrick Malka, Pete Bowe, Philip, R.M. Rhodes, the podcast, Rain It In, Matt and Rachel, Roar Vinland, Rob Sloan, Robert Nego Esco, Roman Marachek, Romantic Placebo, Ron Bilodeau, Ross Llewellyn, and Ryan O'Neill.
0: And let's finish it off. Thank you, Sorry Nichols, Seth Friedman, Simon Workman, Thomas Tremberger, Vielheit, and Whitney Buchanan.
1: We appreciate everything you all have done. If you would like to be part of the uh, Archival Patreon, you can check us out at patreon.com supercontext. And we're back. Uh, what was that about Madonna that you wanted to talk about?
0: So Madonna's Like a Virgin was the top album in the UK chart at the time that this came out. And Kate Bush's Hounds of Love knocked it down. That That blows me away. Like, I've always thought of this as kind of an esoteric, somewhat alternative, but successful record, but to hear that it knocked out, like what, what I think of as probably the most successful artist of the 1980s, maybe other than Michael Jackson.
1: Well, now here's, here's the context that you need. The UK charts, Mm -hmm. right? So, uh, it, the record sold a little more than a million copies by 1998. Yeah. Right. And it, it, uh, cleared, The Madonna bar knocked Madonna down on the chart in the U.K. It went double platinum uh, in the U.K., which is 600,000. Remember how we've talked about how platinum for different countries is proportionate to the population? Um, And it went into the top 40 in the United States, but it didn't knock Madonna off the chart. In the United States.
0: So that's why it's a little different from your, and my experience. I imagine some of our British listeners are probably like, Oh yeah. Like when I was growing up, Kate Bush was huge.
1: Yeah. And, and more important to me than Madonna's, you know, possibly internationally interesting, but still less relevant.
0: Yeah. Music. Yeah. So this record, it's popular. It sold a lot of units. It also has been critically acclaimed, Uh, It won the Best Album at the 1986 Brit Awards. Pitchfork Magazine included it as number four on their list of the best 200 albums of the 1980s. In a poll of the public conducted by NPR, this record was voted fourth place in the list of 150 greatest albums ever made by female artists. It placed number 10 in NMA's NME's critics list of the best albums of that year. Uh, and then in 1998, Q magazine readers voted this the 48th greatest album of all time.
1: These are all um, wonderful superlatives. They're all over and the yet, place. And yet I'm totally stuck on that. 150 greatest albums made by female artists
0: Mm -hmm. i I
1: have moved in my life from one place in my head to another and the the new place in my head is why the fuck are we doing two different listings for male and female artists
0: yeah i i agree um and yet at the same time and this is a great segue into us talking about representation this is i mean it's undeniable that that like part of the listening experience with this is Kate Bush's gender and sexuality. Yeah. And it, we would be remiss to, if we didn't mention again, like she is one of the first female musicians to chart as high as she did while writing everything herself and producing it all herself. It's, it it was, it was unique at the time.
1: And this is anecdotal, but people seem to describe her aesthetic and her ideas and her vision as being feminine in a way that is not constructed. Like, you know, this, she's felt like a woman making art. Yeah. Yeah. And that wasn't a limit nor a, um, a a lens, I guess, but it was more like, Oh, this felt like actual feminine artistic energy
0: obviously there were plenty of female singer songwriters and mainstream musicians at that time. Um, but, but yeah, I guess this wasn't, hmm. I'm thinking about some of the interviews in that documentary, people like Tori Amos and St. Vincent who talked about how important this record was to them and, uh, their careers, I think were inspired by her as a role model that she was showing them. This is, this is how you can do it if you want to. Not necessarily the style of music, but the the business ethic of it, the production.
1: Yeah. And while it wasn't specific to like, oh, hey, a woman did it like this, so I can do it like this. But Mm -hmm. it was surely um, helpful to have a role model of the same gender.
0: Yeah. I mean, like going back to the DIY punk thing we were talking about, it was real easy for me in the 90s to envision starting a band and putting out my own record and starting my own record label. Because I had role models like Ian MacKay or Greg Jin who had already done that. And they had shown, like, this is how you build the distribution network. This is how you record the record, yada, yada. They had exemplified it already. Um, But if you wanted to do, like, weird piano music and sing on top of that, who who was showing you how to do that other than Kate Bush, right?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I am woefully underexposed to an era and a genre that I thought I
0: was really into. Hmm. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, certainly this, all the revelations I've had about Kate Bush and, and her position in this grouping of UK Prague or experimental pop artists. Yeah. Right. And I thought that, I thought I would recognize. I think that I would have felt like I should have recognized that stuff if I hadn't known going in that this was a super context and I was going to get my ass handed to me in terms (laughs) of (laughs) things that I know about.
0: Well, it's it's kind of fascinating. Like, you know, you mentioned Peter Gabriel a lot. You mentioned King Crimson a lot. You mentioned Rush a lot. You mentioned Pink Floyd a lot. All of them come up here in that documentary, she talks about them as being her primary influences. Well,
1: it's hilarious that she very she says, oh, yeah, my brothers, they really liked King Crimson, you yeah. know, like it, it's almost like the, the gender line is declared even in her discussing her um, influences.
0: Well, I can't remember who it was who mentioned this, but they're talking about prog rock and they're talking about in the documentary how Kate Bush doesn't get referred to as prog rock. Probably because of the gender division and they say, but yeah, you know, like there's two different kinds of ideas of what prog rock means. There's the like technical version of prog rock where it's everybody's showing how great they can be at their instruments. Uh, Or as I like to say, they're counting a lot. (laughs) They're doing a lot of they're doing a lot of like what weird measures can we be in? And then there's this kind of thing where it's it's progressive because it's experimental, not because she's showing that she's like an incredibly talented musician even though she right. is
1: and, and progressive also involves the kind of mixing of styles and processes, you know, mm-hmm. classical and rock and jazz in a way improvisation on top of um, doo wop
0: structures, you know? Yeah. So, so she was doing, this so she stuff, matches it perfectly. But it's, yeah. Yeah. I think, um I think because of how, the record industry was set up at the time and the context of 1980s and music videos and all these other things that it was really easy to create points of identification with her or with other musicians and not see that they were linked together. Yeah. Uh, Ron Moy kind of, kind of brings this up in his book Uh, and he, he he kicks us off here talking about themes. He says that there's an article by Holly Cruz about this, and Cruz says that Bush frames her visions in arrangements that combine ancient folk instruments with the latest in synthesizer technology. And while the idiosyncratic piano proved to be the ideal accompaniment for something like the dreamings introspection, hounds of love required an instrument that mirrored its focus on interpersonal relationships and the interrelatedness of life, meaning the fairlight. Yeah.
1: Which came into her life or her musical life because of her connections to the scene that was the prog rock scene in the UK. By
0: 1985, she had been accepted as being critically acclaimed and she was thought of as a mature artist that was, quote, lucky enough to still command the loyalty of a sizable and devoted number of fans. And that meant that Kate Bush could produce and sell moderately, but the units weren't actually the issue for anyone except for the record company or the chart compilers. More significantly, the industry accepted her as one totally unprepared to compromise her work and her privacy through carrying out more than a bare minimum of promotion.
1: So she rejected the, um, uh, the role of product for the yeah. record label.
0: Yeah, and this gets into what she's known for now, which is, you know, two albums after Hounds of Love, she just completely disappeared for like, I think 15, maybe 20 years. Um, The story that I was always told, I had a roommate who was like hugely into Kate Bush, like knew so much more about her than I did. And he told me this story that she did an interview that was pretty rare, I think sometime in the 90s. And they said, what are you working on? And she said, I'm working on my greatest project ever, my children. (laughs) And she was just like, All I want to focus on right now is myself and my family. I mean, I'm sure she was writing music at the time. A person like this could, couldn't not be writing, but, um, but it was important to her to get away from all of the, the limelight and the publicity and people nagging her and just focus on raising a family.
1: Yeah. So the gap in studio albums that you're referring to, the red shoes came out in 1993 and the next studio album credited to her is Ariel which came out in 2005.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So that makes sense. I think this conversation I had might've been like a year or two before Ariel came out.
1: Yeah. So there probably were rumors, but
0: mm-hmm. yeah, she was
1: just kind of off. She'd gone.
0: And I, I remember when Ariel came out, people were wound up about that record. Cause they were like, Oh my God, she hasn't done anything in so long. What has she been doing? This, this amazing thing is going to come out.
1: Now Hounds of Love also gets connected to prog rock because of the concept album part of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is so funny to me. I cannot speak to this um objectively at all because concept albums were the the shit I loved the most in high school. Mm-hmm. You know? And it was like, hey, there's there's records that are songs that are connected and there's records that are just a bunch of singles together, and I like the ones that are connected, you know. So to me, and my, my musical taste, it was like, um, the good stuff was concept and okay. the bad stuff rejected concept. And I would even sort of, um, shoehorn stuff that I really liked, but wasn't a concept record and make my own concept out of it and be like, oh yeah, see, it, it has, a, it has a concept. Right.
0: <laughs> well, this was clearly your, your wheelhouse more than mine. Cause these are, you know, we've talked about recently we've spent a lot of time talking about prog rock recently. I yeah. think you really wanted to force it down. i just super been getting context it in there tube. before we finish it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, they mentioned rush here. They mentioned another one of your favorite bands. Yes. These are not things that I'm super into. Uh Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Is that a Charlie thing? Oh shit. Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah I don't know a ton about that. And uh, I the mean, radio
1: hit uh, welcome back my friends to the show that never ends. Uh, that's the, That's ELP. That's like one of their more poppy things. Also Giger did artwork for one of their records.
0: Oh yeah. That's right. I do remember seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. They just keep mentioning time after time, band after band that you worship at the altar of. And yet like she's, she's somewhere off in the distance for you until now. Do you think like you're going to, you're going to dive deep into Kate Bush now?
1: No, no. I think I really liked listening to Hounds of Love and I think that I will be ready to listen to more of her, mm. but like, okay, this is, it's going to sound kind of stupid,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but at this moment in the sort of the social isolation of COVID-19.
0: Yeah. Where, we were recording this in yeah, April of 2020.
1: My whole family is in the house and there is a certain compromise when it comes to our media consumption of finding the things that, not are perfect for everybody but that can work in these kind of close quarters okay you know so this is
0: let's remind the audience again like a major difference between you and i is that you don't listen to music with headphones on
1: right um and i i don't really like hiding out and trying to listen to a record or watch a movie or a television show when the kids are bouncing around and, you know, when Casey's trying to get work done too. It feels very much like I got to keep that separate. I like the music to be in the house. There's stuff I can't play. Like, I can't play Phantomas, right? Um, because the kids won't put up with that and neither will Casey. And in fact, for a little while there, Casey would even say things like, are you going to play that... Um, that droning metal thing again. You can play that earth band again. Well, now I'm not now that you've asked me like that. No,
0: (laughs) I like, I like the earth, which I think is probably the tamest metal band I've ever heard (laughs) is, is droning metal. Well, there's, Um,
1: there's not a lot of metal in this house to begin with because of this listening experience.
0: But so what you're saying here is that Kate Bush is weird and isolating enough that you can't play it in front of your kids. And your wife
1: is distracting and um challenging enough that I don't want to dive deep
0: at this point. Okay. So you can have your full attention on it.
1: Yeah, I mean I, when I get back to the office, mm-hmm. definitely there'll be some lunch breaks where I'm
0: listening to the Kate Bush record of the day. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Um so yeah, this is a concept record. Uh, Moy brings up the the importance of it being a concept record and the context of the time for it being a concept record. Um, There's some interesting stuff going on here between that, the state of radio broadcasting, especially more in Europe than here. And this like surge of the importance of the music video, it overlaps with her trajectory as a as a creator in a weird way that kind of produces this stuff too well
1: it sounds like uh, the you know mainstream music consumption
0: catches up with what she had been doing Mm, maybe maybe although i i think if that were 100 percent true that there would be more uh artists like her that came out in the 80s maybe maybe it took a while but like more experimental (laughs) video weirdos. You know what I mean? Like I'm thinking I can't, my wife and I were joking about this. There's a, um, have you ever seen spaced the TV show? Yeah. Some of it. So there's a, um, there's a bit in one episode where they have a friend who's doing a performance art piece and their friend's name is vulva and Volva is uh, uh doing this big performance art piece and it's it's very kate bush right there's like weird music she's dancing around she's making weird gestures with her body because she's a
1: cultural marker
0: like she yeah
1: she is someone that oh it's a clearly casual a casual impression point. will make it clear to someone in the yeah. uk oh that's kate bush
0: yeah and um <laughs> Vulva stops and everybody starts clapping and Volva yells at the audience it's not finished And then pauses for five (laughs) seconds and then yells, it's finished. (laughs) And, and we were watching the Kate Bush documentary and we were like, wow, this is, this is where Vulva started from. Oh, wow. Um, Speaking of where she started from,
1: we have, we have something from Jason Cowley in the New Statesman that goes back to the Wuthering Heights. So hearing Wuthering Heights and wow for the first time as part of this documentary (laughs) was a somewhat disorienting experience. Yeah. So Callie writes, uh, when I mentioned at a recent new Statesman editorial conference that I wanted to write about Kate Bush, colleagues responded with a mixture of incredulity and awe. The incredulous still associated her with a single song, Wuthering Heights, which is a, falsetto non-repeating melodic song yeah that details it's almost like someone's improvising you know just like making shit up as it goes along and here's the rolling thing and here's the window that's up and i i urge you to pause your listening experience and go put on weathering heights just to Look, hear a little bit of what's going on
0: yeah folks if you're enjoying this episode and you've made it this far and you don't you haven't seen Kate Bush's music videos. I would just go on YouTube and watch them because they're nuts. And like, uh, uh, I think it was bat for lashes in that documentary. She was talking about how, like, it's like she has multiple personalities in the videos. Yeah. Yeah. And the the personalities change. yeah. Yeah. And she gets these like wide, crazy eyes when she gets like really wild and excited in her singing. And that's what I associate with her.
1: Yeah. And, and like, um, a controlled crazy, mm-hmm. because everything is composed and and performed, and and the repeating stuff in it makes it clear, like, oh yeah, this was planned, but yeah. it is lunatic at the same time. Uh, Cowley goes on to say, "The odd of my colleagues were all women, and they knew Bush for the complex and remarkable artist that she is, perhaps the most singular and talented female singer songwriter and composer of her generation." Now she was born in '58. Which makes her a boomer, Chris, of all things. Boom, boom. <laughs> boom, boom, Bush. That is so, that's such a better reaction than I thought you might have. <laughs> Cowley says, there is no one quite like her. Without Kate Bush, there could have been no Madonna or Bjork, certainly in the guises that we know them. And here, here are the qualities that Cowley then lays out. Yeah. Tough, independent, eccentric, committed, and daring Mm. Mm-hmm. And yet, her public persona in promotion is shy, tentative. She's she has a pretty a, like
0: soft spoken, quiet, yeah. yeah, she's got a very quiet voice that is delicate, like the way and when her... she talks about her work, she's not eccentric. she's just like, yeah, I just like writing songs about books that I read, and like yeah. I saw this movie <laughs> and it inspired me, and so I wrote a song about it, like she's not. Uh, you know, acting like I don't some, some nutcase, you know? Yeah. Uh, Dermot Stokes
1: writes in Hot Press, Kate Bush peaked from the start. And that's not an easy burden to bear, even for one so obviously and prodigiously gifted. And her output since then bears all the hallmarks of such pre-consciousness. Some of it brilliant by even the most exacting standards, but some of it also self-indulgent, overstated, and sometimes downright wacky. One thinks of England,
0: one thinks of her lion heart. So this is a a part of the episode that I think that you and I are incapable of grasping on and why we needed a quote like that. Um, She's like somehow essential to English cultural identity. I
1: adore the path that you and I have been on in super context. (laughs) It's all by like um, association. It's all by sort of. Uh, it's the black hole thing where like the stuff that surrounds it defines it as opposed to what's in it. Yeah. But we are learning the, the cultural mindset of several places by hearing from them, what really embodies them Mm. and Mm -hmm. trying to like, okay, so if Kate Bush has some essential Englishness, all right, well now I know a little bit more, but I'll have to attach that to some other things that people say are essentially English before I really get a feel for what this Englishness is.
0: Well, I think though there's also a point where like we can have that zeitgeist defined for us by these marker points, but we, we can't, we can't fully understand it because we didn't exist within it, you know, in, in the same way the Madonna example is unfortunately apt here in that like both you and I understand Madonna as like a referent point of like something that's quintessentially American.
1: Yeah. I was there when that happened, man. Yeah.
0: And, and (laughs) to us, Kate Bush was just kind of this like alternative artist off to the side, but that's because we're American.
1: Well, you know, even more so for me, she was just a name on some credits. Like I, I had a voice that I heard. I didn't understand anything about the artistic process. I didn't understand her placement in a music industry. I didn't understand her far-reaching plan for how she would do her, her art, how she would do her process. And yet I recognize in how she does things so much of what I've come to understand is, Oh, the, this is the perfect situation.
0: Yeah. This is the I, perfect artistic scenario. That's my takeaway from this as well. Um, you know, I loved this record, but doing the research on this really opened my eyes to why she was able to make this record. And in a lot of ways, there's privilege to it, right? Like, she was privileged because she came from a family that was supportive. She had uh, people outside her family who supported her and believed in her. And they convinced people with deep pockets to invest money in her. And she was able to have the room and the resources to experiment doing something like this. And that was rare then, and I think it's even rarer now. You've been listening to SuperContext, a podcast autopsy of media. How it's made and how it informs our everyday culture. Our theme music is Human Factor by Mile Marker. And right now you're listening to Drive Fast by Three Chainlinks. Show notes and all our past episodes are available at SupercontextPodcast.libsen.com.
1: You can email the show at SuperContextPodcast at gmail.com to tell us what you like, what you don't like, and to suggest topics for future shows.
0: And I'm available on Twitter as at Christian Sager. And
1: I'm there at Bennett Radio. Two N's, two T's.